Uh, glad to be with you. I'm encouraged to, I've met Blake quite a few times. We've, like he said, uh, we've had a few interactions and then getting to meet his family last night was a treat. It was a treat for me. I have two students with me that are playing hooky. So the, pro, uh, the program that I run is called Radius. It's down in Tijuana, Mexico. So they are sons and daughters of Arkansas, so they came with me for this trip. Uh, they'll give a little bit of a talk after we do a little PowerPoint after talk number two. And then we have some alumni, Joe and Britta, who are over there, wave your hands real quick. Uh, they are also, so Joe, these two and that guy are University of Arkansas grads, and Britta is a distinguished Dort University graduate. So anyways, they are uh, here as well, but Really glad to get to meet Blake's family last night. When I was fresh off of the field coming from Papua New Guinea, uh, my in-laws served at Annapolis. My mother-in-law was a commander in the Navy, believe it or not, um, and she was teaching at Annapolis, and we had a Sunday that was free, and so I decided, I've heard about this church named Capitol Hill Baptist Church. I'd like to go there, and so we went there, and I heard Blake preach. Uh, that was the first time I'd ever heard somebody from that world preaching. I thought, this guy looks like he's about 16, and he can preach pretty well. So I was very, very encouraged. We're going to work through uh, two talks. Uh, so there will be one, talk number one, and then talk number three. Uh, talk number two is more of a PowerPoint and introduction to Radius, so you know uh, what we do and why we do it. There's some uniquenesses to it. I have still uh, yet to find a school like it anywhere in the world. Uh, it's a very specific school for very specific purposes. But talk number one and talk number three are more pointed. Uh, talk number three is going to be nuts and bolts. If you're thinking about how to send out missionaries, what to be thinking through, what are some key things that you should have in your mind as a church or as parents or as potential goers, ones who are going to go, uh, that's going to be the nuts and bolts. This one is more of an overarching 30,000-foot view on how we should be thinking about the Great Commission, how we should be thinking about our own lives in this day and age. Uh, living in the West gives us particular privileges, and it also has particular pitfalls as well. And so to be mindful of that as we head into those things. Uh, before we get into all of that, though, just a little bit of background. I assume some of you have read some history of where I'm from uh, and some background as far as that goes. So to fill in a few gaps. We'll talk a little bit more about this, and I'll talk some more tomorrow at the Sunday service uh, about some of this. But I was raised over in New Guinea. I, my parents were missionaries right up near the Erie and Jaya border. Um, I went to boarding school from first grade to 12th grade, went to a Commonwealth boarding school, played a lot of rugby, a lot of cricket, uh, ended up really liking basketball a lot in the midst of that. Came back to the United States, was gonna join the Marine Corps, uh, was pretty close, and my father asked me if I would do two years at a community college or at a local college, and then he would give me his blessing to join the Marine Corps. I uh, went into uh, college orientation, freshman orientation, and in walked this drop-dead gorgeous blonde who was leading uh, freshman orientation, and I waved bye-bye to the Marine Corps that day. Um, we ended up getting married. Uh, there, she was dating another guy. By God's grace, they broke up wonderful, uh, and I was there to be the shoulder to cry on. Um, we dated throughout my freshman and sophomore year, and then we got married at the end of my junior year. 
and I had no great aspirations to go into missions. I was a business major with an emphasis in accounting and was wanting to get us out of stu student debt, was wanting to be a faithful church member, and through God's great providence, through a few twists and turns in our life, and honestly through our faithful time and devotions and our being faithful members at a local church, that's where we got our call into missions. We never got a missionary call. Uh, when I was over in New Guinea, the final two years that I was there, I was leading uh, New Guinea and Indonesia and parts of Thailand. I was on a leadership team, and we had a gathering of missionaries one time, and we did an impromptu poll. How many of you ever got a missionary call, meaning you saw something, something unique that was outside of the norm, and nobody raised their hands? Everybody got their missionary call either from Scripture itself and the confirmation of their local church or a combination of those things. And that's a really, really important thing for you guys as a young church. I'm speaking here primarily the Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church. Um, for you guys to think through that most people find their call through the local church and how the word is preached and how missions is talked about in the local church. That's where most faithful missionaries come from. And so that was our story. Uh, we headed to two years of training, uh, learned how to do Bible translation, learned how to build a house where none existed, learned how to do solar before it was cool. Uh, everybody does solar now, but back in the day when green was a very strange thing, uh, how to wire up solar panels in the middle of the jungle, how to live in places where there's no phones, no roads, no airfields, no nothing. You are out there Robinson Crusoe style for quite a few months at a time, uh, sometimes years. And then we went back to, uh, or went to the field of Papua New Guinea, uh, landed there. If you go and you're taking the gospel to an unreached language group, so there's about 3,100 languages left today, 3,112, if you want to be really specific, uh, languages that have no gospel, no disciples, and no church. And if you're going to get to those places, you typically are going to have to learn two languages. You're going to have to learn the language of the country, and then you're going to have to learn the language of that unreached language group. And so we learned the national language. So that's the national language. It's kind of like a, a Hawaiian, Melanesian, Pinjin, Pinglish type of uh, language. It took us about a year and a half to learn that. And then we moved into Yembi Yembi. And uh, Yem the Yembis had been sending out letters for seven years. And there was five other tribes. They didn't make the list of even tribes that we were approved to look at unless they'd been asking for missionaries for five years or more. Now, they weren't asking for the gospel. We know from Scripture that no man seeks after God. They were asking for all of the benefits that came when missionaries moved in. Uh, missionaries would bring these little white pills, and their babies wouldn't die as frequently. They found that out by seeing what happened in other locations. And sometimes missionaries would build airfields, and there would be easier ways to get people out when they uh, had some medical issues. And so the place that we were looking at, Yembiembi, uh, was asking for seven years, sending out letters, send someone to us, send someone to us. And so uh, we ended up going in there on a survey, myself and three other guys. <clears throat> and it, what happens in Yembiembi, if they like you, don't ask what they do if they don't like you, but if they like you, 
when we landed at another airfield that was about five hours away, and then we got in a motor canoe. Motor canoe is a canoe about as long as this room is wide with an outboard motor on the back of it. And then we started motor canoeing, and we motor canoed for five hours. And as we got closer and closer, we could hear the drums pounding out, telling everybody that we're coming. And we pulled up, and they were so excited. They'd been, again, asking for seven years. And we weren't committed to being their missionaries yet, but we were coming, and it was kind of like a, a forerunner to what was going to happen. They yanked us out of the canoe, and again, they liked us, and they took hunks of mud, and they pushed them into our face. And this is what, when we have visitors that come, and if they're Christians, and the church knows that they're coming, this is the typical welcome. You get off the airplane, mud goes into the face, they push it all the way down to your Adam's apple, then they take diced up flower petals, whip those at your face, and it sticks to the mud. And now you're beautiful. Now you're ready to come into the village. And that was our experience as we got out of the canoe. Uh, we spent three days, we walked around, we took a bunch of language samples, so uh, wrote down their language phonetically, um, and then a bunch of video, came back out, told our wives, explained to field leadership what the place looked like. We wrote our uh, home church back in San Diego. Another one of our coworkers was from Minnesota. Um, wrote our churches and said, hey, we think this is the spot where we're going to go. Would you pray with us about this? Prayed for about three weeks and then decided this is the place we're going to go. We went back into Yembe Yembe, uh, told the tribe, same deal, yanked us out of the canoes, mud, the whole nine yards, and we're living with them. They have a house ready for us at this time. We said, we're going to come and we're going to do four things. Number one, we're going to learn your language. We're going to learn to speak like you speak because the message that we carry is too important for us to get wrong. Number two, we're going to teach you how to read and write in your own language. There was no written alphabet. That's, uh, we had to develop an orthography for them. That's a fancier word for an alphabet. So we had to, we're going to teach you how to read and write in your own language. And then number three, we're going to take a really important book. We're going to do a few other books before this, little tester books. We did uh, Customs of the Jews. We did a basic health book, Animals of the Bible. These were all books that we translated prior to Scripture. It's a lot easier to get those books wrong than it is to get Genesis wrong. Um, and then we're going to teach you the meaning of that book. We're going to do those four things. And someday when we've finished those four things, we're going to leave. We're not going to be here forever. We're here until we finish those four jobs. But we won't leave until we finish those jobs. And uh, the Yembis told us, that's great. So exciting that you guys are coming. But we want you to be, if you're really going to live among us, if you're going to be part of us, we want you adopted into the families here. In Yembe there's four clans. There's the ostrich clan, eagle clan, black cockatoos, and the toucans. They're all birds. And they said, okay, we're going to put you all in clans. And so they looked at me. I'm kind of tall. I've got a little bit of a crooked nose. I played college basketball. They said, you're definitely in the ostrich clan. So they adopted me into the ostrich clan. Uh, my wife has long blonde hair. They put her in the eagle clan. And then they put us all in different clans. You can't be from the same clan as your wife. That's a bad thing. Uh, you have to be in different clans. They put us all in different clans. They gave us new names. They adopted us into different families, individual families. So my son went from being an only child to having 17 brothers and 13 sisters in one day, um, just adopted into various ways so that they could identify us. Because in Yembe Yembe, it's an insult to call somebody by their name. That's what outsiders do. Insiders call each other by how they're related to them. Father, grandfather, cousin, cousin on my wife's side, second cousin, 
there, so you, we had about a thousand people in Yembiembi, and we had to learn how we were related to all of them and how the clans come from four brothers. And so all of these relationships that we were now adopted into. And then we learned how to hunt. Uh, when we moved into Yembi, uh, three weeks into it, the Yembis came to us and they asked us, uh, the three men on the team, eventually we built our houses and our wives moved in and they said, have you ever killed a wild boar? Never done that. <clears throat> and they said, uh, okay. And they came up with a new name for us because a boy changes into a man in Yembi Yembi. He's not allowed to marry. There's an entire house that's about as big as this room that's called the House of Men. He's not allowed to enter into that house until he's killed a boar at night with a spear by himself. When he does that, he changes into a man. Then he's officially allowed to marry. He's allowed to enter into the house of men, all these things. And so they called us because we were these guys that were now part of the family. And somehow we'd been allowed to marry and father children. Uh, they called us overgrown boys. And we were these large-bodied guys. Most of the Yembis are about this tall. They have massive shoulders from paddling canoes all their life. But we were these boys that were in their midst. And so we started into language learning. We started into learning how to hunt at night, how to walk barefoot, uh, how to hold a spear just right, how a young guy throws a spear wrong, and how older guys are supposed to throw a spear, and all these different things. And we did these things not because we were so into Yembi culture, or not because we're these big linguists that love to learn language. We did these things so that when the gospel would come someday, the gospel would come from somebody that they respect somebody that they look up to, somebody that could speak clearly, could speak their language, could use all the metaphor, all the idiom, all the color that God had put into the Bisius language, that was the language of the Yembiembis, so that when that gospel message comes, it comes with that power. And finally, after two years of getting everything up to speed, of learning their language, of developing a literacy program, of teaching the first 50 who went through, who could read and write for the first time in their own language, and then having another 150 coming after them, we started into the biblical narrative. And we didn't start in Romans. Uh, we didn't start in Matthew. We started in Genesis 1.1. And we walked them through. And we'll talk about more of this tomorrow walking them through the scriptures and getting them to the point to where they understood what was at stake here, the pivotal moment of Genesis chapter 3. I'm thoroughly convinced if someone doesn't understand Genesis chapter 3, the fall of mankind, there's no way they understand Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You don't know what you're being saved from unless you understand the ramifications of the curse and what we have been born into as sons and daughters of Adam. And so these things, as the Yembis were tracking with the story, we'll talk about more of that a little bit tomorrow when we get into the church service. But finally, in April 2008, uh, we had the first believers in the history of the Yembi Yembi people understand who Jesus Christ was and that he was the only sacrifice sufficient to assuage God's wrath. And from that, those 50 or 60 that got saved, they continued to share how they lived, how some of them died, the first deaths in Yembi Yembi with peace, knowing where they were going with no fear. Uh, that testimony spread throughout the language group to where there's over 500 Yembis, and they've planted two churches in their sister villages today. So that's some of the background that I'm going to be coming at our talk today with and our time today, and we'll get into a few other things. So if you have your Bibles, turn over to Luke chapter 18, verse 18. 
I speak at quite a few different venues. Um, more and more, I'm uh, encouraged with certain colleges, certain seminaries, and certain churches that are thinking critically about missions. Missions tends to be one of those things, well, it's over there, and those people are doing it, and God bless them. Hopefully, they keep going. But to take an approach of, no, we need to focus in on what is, it, what is exactly our church's responsibility, what are our ambassadors, those who are sent out from our church, and those that we support, what's our responsibility in that? And more and more churches, more and more individuals are thinking through those things. But one of the questions I get quite often is, how come more people aren't going into missions, uh, especially unreached language groups? Missions is kind of this massive umbrella and it catches a lot of things, some good things, some not so good things, but getting to the ends of the earth, getting to where no foundation has been laid, getting to those places that still have no gospel, no disciples, no church, roughly 2% of all mission efforts go in that direction. That means 98% go somewhere else. How come that's the case? And when I came back to the U.S. in 2016, after the church was established in Yembi we'd finished the translation of the scriptures. Uh, they were on their own. They have their own elders, their own deacons. I go back every year. So next month, I go back for the sixth time in a row. And they're holding their first conference ever, where they're inviting seven churches from around Papua New Guinea uh, to come be a part of a conference. They're the first conference that I know of in New Guinea that's going to have a track for the elders' wives. And so they're telling elders to bring your wife, and they've planted gardens about a year and a half ago to have enough food for everybody that's coming. And one of the questions that is constantly coming up is, how come more effort, more energy isn't going in that direction? And the common thought is, either people haven't understood this from their Bibles, or they don't know about the lost and don't understand that the lost, those who do not understand who Christ is, are going to a Christless eternity, are going to hell. Those are usually the two common assumptions. But I don't think it's either one of those. I think it's usually that people are not wanting to let go of their own plans, so they don't want to buy into the Lord's plans. Usually it's something along the lines of, I have these dreams, these hopes, these aspirations for either myself or my children or my grandchildren, and so these dreams that I see in the Scriptures, these plans that I see in the Scriptures, they will take a backseat to my dreams my hopes, my ambitions, my family's plans. So this story in Luke 18:18 18, 18 is a bit of a cautionary tale about someone who was eager to be a follower of Christ, and we see the ramifications of the way he prioritized things. So let's read this together, and we'll take it piece by piece. So I'm just going to read verses 18 through 21, and then we'll take another uh, verse in a few minutes here. So it says this in Luke 18, 18, a ruler and a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. So let's pause there really quickly. So catch the scene. This is, other passages will say, other complementary passages and other verses where, or other 
Gospels where we see this, con- this whole story laid out. This is a rich, young ruler. This is the type of individual you build a movement around. He's wealthy, and he's searching. He's not like asking some out-of-the-blue question. This isn't how many angels on the head of a pin type question. This is how do I inherit eternal life? This is the type of individual who is genuinely looking for spiritual truth. He wants to understand one of the pivotal questions that all human beings, thinking rationally, understanding the governance of the world, think through at some stage in life. So this is not some fringe guy. He's coming and he's asking the right questions. And so Jesus is going to lay out for him the law. And he lays out these things. And the young man, as best he understands it, he answers the question, yeah, I've been following these things. And he doesn't understand all the nuances. He obviously isn't understanding Jesus' prior teaching to this, where understanding following the law is part of the heart, not just part of the body. And he doesn't get that. And so Jesus, in his grace and in his kindness, presses in on an area that only he can, that only he knows. And friends, I've been around enough followers of Jesus Christ to where if it hasn't happened to you yet, it will happen to you someday. There are things that we give our Lord and Savior very easily and very readily, but there are little corners. That's mine. That's mine please don't ask for that. Please don't put your finger on that. And this is what God in his grace does with this young man. It says this in verse 22. When Jesus heard this, he's talking about him saying that he had followed all these things in the law, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. And here's the common misinterpretation of this passage, that this passage is about money. This passage isn't about money, and we see that by the follow-up to what happened with Peter and Jesus after Peter watches all of this go down. You know what this passage is about? What's dearest to your heart? What's the thing that is closest to your heart? Because that's what Jesus is putting his finger on. It happens to be money for this young man. And for some, that will be the case. For others, it'll be safety. And we live in a world where things are falling apart faster and faster. We hear, I mean, the the news cycle in general is all about things just going from bad to worse to worse to worse to worse. We have a way in the West of finding where can we find the most safety? Where can we find bastions where our values will still hold up when the world collapses, when the way that our grandparents lives fails, when all of the things that we find safety in certain things. Others will think through, well, how do I keep my family around? How do I keep the values that we were raised with perpetuated onto the next generation? There are certain little enclaves of our heart. John Calvin used to say the human heart is a perpetual idol-making factory. We can manufacture anything, good things. These aren't evil things. The family is a wonderful thing. Safety is a wonderful thing, but they can turn into idols. And for this young man, money is a good thing. We know that money is not evil. The love of money is the root of all evil. But evil in and of itself in financial means is not an evil that the Lord spoke against. 
And yet this man, it had become very strange or had become something too deeply to him. And then we also see in this that Jesus put his finger on this area that was so dearest because Jesus wanted to be first. And here's the honest, straightforward truth. If there is that area, Father, I'll give you everything. I'll give you my life. I'll give, just don't ask for this. Then that thing has become your God. Whatever is dearest to your heart that the Lord can't ask of and give to you, or ask of and you give back to him, that becomes your God. This is what happens with so many Christian young people today, is that they would love to go to the mission field, but I got a full ride scholarship to get my master's and my doctorate over here, and missions dies a quiet death in the corner. Very quietly it dies of something that's a good thing, well, my father has this farm, and man, I've seen, we've had radius students come down that the family farm has been uh, in the, the generations for like seven or eight, seven or eight family generations of this farm being passed on, and to walk away from that, that good thing, that sweet thing, but that good thing can become more than what it was intended to become. And this isn't just a unique test for this young man just nine chapters earlier, we see this in Luke 9, 24. We read the, the complimentary passage of this in Mark uh, when we started off this morning. And he said to all, this is Jesus saying to those who would follow him, if any would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Jesus wants followers who will die to the things that are dearest to them. Then come be my disciple. Then come be my follower. And that's unique for each generation, for each society. For the Yembis, oh man, to walk away from Sundays sitting around and to have betel nut and to hang out with everyone, to, to actually have a structured gathering, and then to have people from other clans, men from other clans, as they started to becoming church members who were leaders in the church who have the right to call me out on things that they see in my life. Unheard of. Nobody does that except for my biological fathers and my fathers in the clan. The clan ties and to see how my allegiance to this God, they call uh, Jesus the bridge man, the one who takes us from Satan's side to God's side. That the bridge man and those who are under the bridge man's control, they're closer to me than my clan relatives, than my family relations. That's what the Bible says. And to see these generations since the history of the Yembe people, to see those relationships subservient to the first relationships. We all have things we have to die to if we're going to be followers of Christ. This passage, Luke 9, 23, Matthew 10, and then what we read in Mark 8, John 12, Luke 9, this is one of the passages that is in all of the Gospels. If you're going to be a servant of the King, you lay down those things that are dearest to you. And then in Luke 14, 26, another passage, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and can, uh, can, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus saying is that all other relationships pale in comparison to your relationship with me. There's such a distant second they look like hate. And those who do not view Christ in that way 
don't view the cause of Christ in that way cannot be his disciples. One of the hardest times that I had when we were getting ready to leave, so when I graduated from college, I worked in accounting, and I found out I had a fairly good gift for it, and I um, started working my way up the ladder of a Dutch company, and within a year and a half, I was the CFO of North American operations for a Dutch company. I worked over in the Netherlands, I worked in France, I worked in Germany. Uh, was making more money than I thought possible. Um, we got out of our student debts in nine months, uh, Nina and I, and then we started looking at houses in a very wealthy area of San Diego. I had uh, Nissan cheddar cheese Xterra, and I had the interior rubberized so I could put my surfboards in and then I could hose it out. Uh, it was just a feature that they had at the dealership. Uh, my wife had a Mercedes S-Class. We had all these different things. And then when we started feeling like the Lord was impressing on us to go to the mission field, and the walking away from the physical things wasn't too bad, but saying to my boss, saying to the company that had brought me up so quickly and that I so deeply enjoyed, saying goodbye to them. And I remember going into my boss's office and um, giving my 90-day notice. And the first question out of my boss, it was just him and me, uh, his first question was, what company are we losing you to? And I put my head down and I said, well, actually, no. He knew I was a Christian, and I really believed what the Bible said, which was strange. He, he fancied himself a Christian, except the kind that doesn't read his Bible or go to church, um, if there is such a kind. And he said, what company are we losing you to? I said, no, I'm, I'm actually joining a missions organization, and we're going to be going overseas to uh, bring the gospel to a, a language group that has never heard the gospel. And he had a few choice words for me that I can't repeat, and then he had a whiteboard behind his desk, and he started listing off all of the things that we were leaving behind. And he started off with our bank account, then our 401k, and then the house, and the cars, and the, the other things. And I'd thought of all these things, and so this wasn't off-putting to me. And then he listed my son's name, who I only have one son. God, in his mysterious providence, chose for my wife and I only to have one child. Uh, that wasn't our choice. That was his. And he had been born while I was with the company. And he put his name up there, and he says, you realize that you're throwing away your future. You're literally throwing away everything that you've done and all of the future that you have, but you're also throwing away your boy's future. You realize where he's going, there's, not, there's no schools that are going to give him a stellar grade A education. We had prepaid for his private school education, K through 12, at this private school that we tried to get our money back. We got about half of it. You realize where you're going, what that's going to do. And there are no hospitals. If you're describing to me where you're going, there's, there's no hospitals nearby. And he could get sick. He could die there. Are you ready to shoulder that? Guys, I walked out of that meeting with my boss and went home and had one of the most difficult nights I've ever had of sleeping, just tossing and turning. God, are we taking this missions thing too far? Are we, taking, are we being too extreme in these things? And friends, I would challenge you in here as you raise up members from within your own body, as you have your sons and daughters, as you have those who you love, raised up from the midst here. There will be thoughts of, are we going too far with this? And yet the king comes back to, all things are subservient to me. 
all things follow, uh, flow under my jurisdiction. And guys, that was the only hope that we clung to. If the king says this is worth it, then it's worth it. And we press on in that knowledge. And so we see this passage. <clears throat> Let's close it out here in Luke 18, 23. It says this, the rich young ruler comes back, we come back to the story after Jesus says, sell all you have and come be my disciple. It says this, but when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. And the implication is you've asked for too much. The implication is he walked away. He was very sad because what Jesus was asking him to do, he would not lay that thing on the altar. He would not take that thing that was so dear to him and push it out as something that I will walk away from. And I remember teaching this passage to the Yembyembies, and I was teaching it, and uh, they started chuckling, and they started outright laughing. The Yembies aren't like you guys. You guys are a very normal North American audience. You know when it's appropriate to laugh. You know when it's appropriate to cry, maybe say a few things here and there, but generally not. The Yembies had never sat in institutional learning ever in the history of their people. And so when you gather them together in a group of 500 or more, and they all sit in a circle, now they sit with the speaker and the speaker doesn't have anybody behind him. But in the early days when we were teaching, they all sat in a circle around you. And if they like what you're saying, they'll yell at any time. They'll just put their hands to their mouth and they'll yell up into the top of the teaching house or in the outer space. They'll yell, keep talking. This talk is good to my belly. The belly is the seat of their emotions. And so they, if they don't like what you're saying, they'll yell to the top, enough. Shut your mouth. I'm about to throw this talk up. Like they're going to throw up. Remember, the stomach is so you know if you're flying and dying right away. Like you get instant audience feedback. And so the Yembis are hearing this story of the rich young ruler, and they started chuckling, and they're laughing. And I'm, I'm just like, okay, time out. What's going on? Why is everybody laughing? And two or three of them stand up, and they said, we've read the book that you guys wrote. Remember we did customs of the Jews and like things that Jews had so that they would have some biblical background because they've never seen camels, a wilderness, a sheep. These are all unknown things to them. So we had to introduce all these things for them to have some idea of Scripture and some of the main things happening in Scripture. As they said, we know what a rich man back then had. A rich man had, maybe he had like some pots, like some clay pots. Maybe he had some like white horses or something like that. Maybe he had some really nice ground. That's their way of saying property. And then they said, he didn't even have sago. And I go, what do you mean? And they sago to them is like, sago is the best food ever. When I take them on translation trips, I would take them out and we would have the translation checked and I would, they would go to a steak dinner for the first time, eat beef for the first time in their life and they're cutting up the steak and they're eating it and they're like, this would be so good if only we had sago. Sago is like Elmer's glue mixed with like Play-Doh. That's what it tastes like and that's kind of the consistency. To me, it's... It's not the greatest food on earth, but to them, it's everything. We would eat ice cream, and I mean, they, they, don't, they have cavities like crazy. They're eating it, and they're like, it burns, it burns, but they're like, it's kind of sweet going down, but it would be so good if we could just mix it with sago. <laughs> and sago, and they're making fun of this guy. They cannot believe that this guy, they're saying, this guy had the opportunity to maybe be one of those guys who walked with Jesus, 
to maybe be Peter, John, James, Thomas. He could have been one of those guys. And he walked away because of some clay pots, because of some white horses, because of some ground in Israel that was really good. He didn't even have Sago. (laughs) And the thing that was startling for me was, in 2,000 years of history, you take what the young man's decision was, and you give it to a bunch of Stone Age baby-believing Christians, and it looks like utter foolishness. What did he give his life for? What was possibly of more value? And you look at it from 2,000 years of history, and it looks like a completely foolish decision. And here's the punchline, guys. What will our grandsons our granddaughters, in 2,000 years of history, what will those who come after us, what will our kings say about us? What did we give our lives for? What did we walk away? What were those areas of our life that were untouchable? And 2,000 years of history, an eternity of history of living with the king, will say, oh my goodness. Why? Why did I value that thing so much over following the Lord of the universe. And guys, I know that these are hard things to think through, to talk about dreams, hopes, ambitions, things that are dear to us. When I speak at some of these places, I'll have college students um, come up to me afterwards or parents or things, uh, individuals, leaders in churches, and they'll ask me or they'll say some form of, hey, after they hear the Yimby story, I could never do that. I could never do what you're talking about. I could never, I could never live in a situation like that. And I used to say, when I came back in 2016, I used to say, no, 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 ordinary Christians can do this. This is quite normal. This is something that anybody who follows the Lord can possibly say. But I've changed my answer in the last three years. What I say now is, you're right, you couldn't do that today. But the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory, just like he's called me, the God who empowers us gives you the grace for today to walk in what you know and what you understand and what you believe today in the knowledge and the light. And this is why the church gathering on Sundays, the church having regular intentional impact on each other is so important. What we learn today, we put into practice today. And what God asks of you tomorrow he will give you the grace for tomorrow. But he doesn't give it to you today because if we would have known what God would have asked for us when our son got malaria for the first time, if we would have known what would have been asked of us when we presented the gospel and the teaching house nearly got burned down from the 900 or so Yembis that were infuriated that this talk was taking these new people who believed in the bridge man away from the ancestor stories. If we would have known all of the things that were coming we wouldn't have gotten on the plane. We wouldn't have gone. But God in his grace will give you everything you need for today. And you take that step based on what you know today. You walk and you live and you pray and you think in what you know today and he'll give you everything for tomorrow and the next day. And when the day comes that you get on that airplane at LAX or Chicago or New York and you head across that ocean, he'll give you the grace for that day. And when you make it there and you're looking at this language and you can't understand a word of what they're saying, he'll give you the grace to start taking that little bite and to continue to press on. And he gives you every one of those things as you need that grace. But it doesn't come today. So when people say, I could never do that, you're right, you couldn't do that today. 
But over time, as you walk with your God, he will be faithful each one of those days to walk in a manner that honors him to the end of your days. So, uh, remember, these are the things. uh, I just want to bring us back to the central points of this. Be careful what are the things that are those areas in your heart. Be careful of those things that pull on your heart because it's not evil things that pull us out of our walk with God. It's not evil things that pull us away from what God may have for us, whether that's missions or whether that's uh, living and being a faithful elder or deacon or church leader or father or mother or grandparents in your life. It's usually small things that become lines in the sand that we will not cross. Lord, this is the type of thing you're asking me to do, but it's not where my gifts or my experience or even my income allows me to go. So that, 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 that's a no for me. God would never call my children to that type of missions where they grow up not knowing their grandparents. And these become subtle lines in the sand. Lord, I don't want to commit to a church that asks much of me. Please help me find one where I can attend semi-frequently, tithe, be a part of the Christmas program, and no one will ask me uncomfortable questions. Send me to places where things aren't as intimate. They're not going to dive into my life. Lord, I'll give you a summer, maybe even a couple years, but 10 to 20 years, I'm not feeling called to that. And these become lines that are uncrossable, areas in our heart that this is mine, Lord. And these become idols to us. And so, to close out, um, I I would challenge us as we think through the story of the rich young ruler, as we think through the way that we have structured our lives, as we think through what are the things that are closest to us. Don't have any areas in your life, and this is what happens too often in missions. There are little areas that we will not cross. And so because we won't cross in those areas, God finds that that individual is unusable, unshapeable in the way that he understands the scriptures, in the way that she lives out her faith. May we be men and women that we don't have these cloisters, these little areas of our lives that are untouchable from the Savior. Let me close in prayer. Father, thank you so much for the story of the rich young ruler. Thank you for your grace to those who have heard your message and have laid down things that are deep, laid down things that are costly. We thank you for Peter and him approaching you after seeing this and said that they had left everything and you and your great grace responding that no one who has left home or wife or children or family for the sake of the kingdom of God will not fail to receive many times as much in this life and in the life to come. You're a good God. You love your people. You do not ask what you do not give. You give us the grace. Sometimes it doesn't come In the future, it's not going to come in a way that's going to be uh, avalanched on us, but it is a grace that is there for that day. You are there when we cross those great thresholds, when the challenges come our, our way. You're there for that day. So we rest in you, Father. We rest in your great grace to us. Strengthen us. May we be men and women of courage, knowing that we stand with you and you are a God who overcomes all obstacles. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.